IndyCar fans, it's time to start your engines. Welcome to Pit Pass Indy, a production of Evergreen Podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Martin, a journalist who regularly covers the NTT IndyCar series. Our goal at Pit Pass Indy is to give racing fans an insider's view of the exciting world of the NTT IndyCar series in a fast-paced podcast featuring interviews with the biggest names in the sport. I bring nearly 40 years of experience covering IndyCar and NASCAR, working for such media brands as NBCSports.com, SI.com, ESPN Sports Ticker, Sports Illustrated, Auto Week, and Speed Sport. So let's drop the green flag on this episode of Pit Pass Indy. If ever there was a driver that embodied the glamour and lifestyle of being a professional racer in the 1980s, it was Danny Sullivan. Beginning with this episode of Pit Pass Indy, we're going to take a deep dive into the great career of the 1985 Indianapolis 500 winner and 1988 kart IndyCar champion. He dated beautiful women who were models and actresses, including Christy Brinkley and Lisa Hartman, before she married actor-singer Clint Black. Sullivan even modeled himself for Town & Country magazine. Sullivan's appeal was so strong, he was cast in an episode of the iconic 1980s television show Miami Vice in the episode Florence, Italy. He played a race car driver accused of murdering a prostitute with some of the filming scenes in pit lane of the Miami Grand Prix. He played golf with the greats of the game and struck up a friendship with Greg Norman that continues today. Sullivan was an A-list celebrity. He was the epitome of what many in the mainstream thought a race driver should look like. But deep down, Sullivan was a true racer. It was a long path that brought the driver from Louisville, Kentucky, to stardom. In this exclusive interview with the 71-year-old Sullivan from his home in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida recently, we covered so much ground that we are going to make this a two-part episode. Today's edition focuses on how Sullivan went from attending military school in Kentucky to all the jobs that he had before he got into racing. He moved to New York City in 1970, where he waited tables at the famed Maxwell's Plum on 64th and 1st Avenue in Manhattan, briefly drove a taxi and had an even briefer time as a lumberjack in the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York. Sullivan never planned on being a race driver, but when he took a course at the Jim Russell Driver's School at Snetterton, England, as a 21st birthday present in 1970, he was hooked. What followed was a long time in the Formula Ford, Formula 3, and Formula 2 ranks before Sullivan finally began to show promise of reaching the big time. This episode covers those early years on Sullivan's career all the way up to his season in Formula One with famed team owner Ken Terrell and the Benetton Formula One team in 1983. Next week's episode will cover his IndyCar career, including his glory days with team owner Roger Penske in the 1980s when Sullivan became an A-list celebrity. Here is part one of my exclusive interview with the great Danny Sullivan. Joining us now on Pit Pass Indy is former kart champion and Indianapolis 500 winning driver, Danny Sullivan. Danny, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. It's good to talk to you after so long. 
A lot of people look at your career, uh, and, and it wasn't the longest career in kart, but it was highly successful. You won a championship. You won the Indianapolis 500, of course, in 1985 for Team Penske. But how did it all start for Danny Sullivan? Well, for the IndyCar was, uh, in particular, was after, you know, I've done a bunch of racing in Europe, came back, did, did Can-Am and different things here in the States. And then I went, I tried my hand at a couple of IndyCar races in 82, but then I got a call to come to a test uh, for Ken Tyrrell when it was the Benetton Tyrrell uh, for Formula One. And I went over and was successful in the first test. And then uh, Paul Ricard and then I did a second test down in Brazil and was successful there and had a season with uh Ken Terrell and, and his team, and, of course, Michele Alvaretto was my teammate. And it looked like it might not um, continue, even though I had two more years on the contract, due to the fact that Benetton wanted to go with a turbocharged car. And I stopped um, in uh, Phoenix on the way to way back home to Colorado and um, and I met with Doug Shearson, and Doug said that Howdy Holmes was going to, you know, retire. And would I be interested in driving for him? And at the time, we were going back and forth with Ken because it looked like, he, as I said, he was going to lose the sponsorship, which he did. And uh, after some long nights and back and forth with Ken and everything, it was one of those deals where it was, you know, a bird in the hand or two in the bush. And uh, so I agreed to drive for Doug. And um, great guy, super family, um, had a great team. It turned out it was the it was the right call. And that year, uh, which was really my first uh, full season in IndyCar, even though I'd done a couple of starts in 82, the real, the real significant part was I won – at uh, Cleveland, so that was a street circuit, for lack of a better word, even though it's an airfield, San Air, Short Oval, and then the Pocono 500. And that kind of secured stuff. But I think most importantly was that at the Pocono 500, I beat, um, I beat Rick Mears in, at the flag um, on a battle, even on the last lap where I held him off and won by, you know, whatever, a couple tenths or something like that. And I think that was one of the things, you know, got Roger noticing me uh, more so. And uh, he, he made an offer, and I hadn't, I hadn't re-signed with Doug at the time. And uh, he made me an offer, and it was kind of like, okay. And, and if you really think back at it, they hadn't had the most success in the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, Roger had such a record even then at Indianapolis and just in general. And I thought, well, uh, here we go. <laughs> so, so that's how it all really started. Uh, and that's how my, my sort of IndyCar career really, uh, took off. But it all really happened rapidly for you in some ways. I know that, uh, people look back at your early days, you you're from Louisville, Kentucky, and I uh, went to Kentucky Military Institute. What was the Jim Russell Driving School 
the racing school that you were able to get as a birthday present for your 21st birthday? Well, I, I you know, because of the, the era of that time and the Vietnam War and everything, and, and I dropped out of school because I had a, a very high lottery number for the draft, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I ended up with a buddy going to New York for literally we were going for a weekend. And I ended up staying two and a half years and did all kinds of odd jobs up there in, in the area. And uh, Dr. Faulkner, Frank Faulkner, a, a longtime friend from Kentucky, I knew his son and daughter went to school with his son and so forth, um, was was on a mission from my, from my parents to try to figure out what I was going to do other than being a waiter in New York City. And um, he had connections in racing. Frank was an independent member of ACUS, had run the Cooper Brabham Project or organized it at Indianapolis when they first came over, a longtime friend of Bruce McLaren, uh, Sterling Moss, Jackie Stewart, Graham Hill, you know, just the list went on. And I've seen all his books, Auto Course, Automobile Year, et cetera. And he said, he said, well, what are you going to do with your life? And so I was trying to get, said, I want to go racing. I want to try racing. I'd never been to a race. Um, I, I take that back. I had been uh, one of the crazies in the infield in Indy in 68 with a bunch of guys from military school. Uh, but I didn't follow racing. I didn't go out to the you know speedway that we had in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I, I like driving, period. And but I had no background. My family had two station wagons. I didn't have any, you know, any kind of muscle car or anything like that. And uh, so he said, well, and he contacted Sir Jackie Stewart, who was at the time, of course, just Jackie Stewart, and said, you know, I've got this young lad. I want to see what should we do. And he said, well, let's let's send him over to Jim, uh, Jim Russell's, and find out if the lad's got any talent. And um, so that's why it was a 21st birthday, because at the time, you couldn't race under 21 years old. You couldn't get a license to race under 21 years old unless you had parental permission. And that was the last thing my parents really were going to give me. Uh, we were pretty much estranged at that time. So anyway, that's how it started. And Jim said I had talent and and uh and he gave me a thumbs up which was really good I, I really to this day believe jim told everybody that but because jackie and and frank faulkner were asking him i think he was you know he, he had a little bit different thing than trying to get all of us signed up for the school and um and that's how it started but to your point i i kind of came out on the scene in america a little bit quicker but all those years of struggling over there and, you know, American trying to raise money with, you know, there was no internet to speak of. There was no, you know, social media, any of that stuff. I mean, we were still doing faxes to let people know what was going on. It was very tough to, for an American to raise money over there. And, you know, it's like, it's, and I'm not complaining. It was, you know, one step, you know, forward and two backwards and then another one and, get a little money and have some success. And, and, uh, it was just like that. So, you know, it was a long slog over there. And I think who was it once said one time it was 
I was an overnight 11 year sensation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it might have been Tom Selleck said that, somebody like that. But, uh, but I'm paraphrasing somebody. I just can't remember who. Well, uh, when you were in New York, you had a lot of odd jobs before your racing career started. Where did you, where were you a waiter at? Well, I worked at a place that's where's the Apple store, was the Apple store, which at the time was called the Auto Pub, of all things, in the bottom of the GM building. And I worked at Maxwell's Plum over on First Avenue, which was a famous uh, watering hole and, uh, you know, just stuff around around town like that. But those were the two most well-known. And how did you become a lumberjack? Well, uh, my buddy that went to to uh, we went to um, New York with his stayed with his aunt and uncle for a while, and they said this isn't going to work. So they found us a job up in the Adirondacks, and we went up there. And they said, "Oh, it's it's a hot summer spot. You know, it's like where everybody goes. They kind of painted it in the Adirondacks. Is that way? But not where they sent us. <laughs> so we ended up there and." And they, they, we got all these odd jobs, tarring roof, cutting timber, trimming tree, you know, all in a, in a, in a kind of a lumber company or camp, I should say. And we, we realized that there was nothing up there for us. So we stayed there as short as possible time, made enough money to get out of town, get back to the city. That's when we realized, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, stay with them. We're going to have to make enough money and get out on our own and, and make our own way. When you're young and you're living in New York, that's got to be some of the greatest times that you could experience. So I would imagine the Adirondacks were the complete opposite of that. <laughs> you couldn't have said it uh, better. It was just, I mean, the Adirondacks is a beautiful part of, of New York and America, but it just, it's, it's really was where we were. It was pretty quiet and that's not what we were looking for. So how did you become a New York City cab driver and how did that experience help you in racing? Well, it was when you when you got to New York in those days um and you know, you didn't know anything, didn't know anybody. There was there was two jobs that were available. You know, you couldn't get a construction job because it was all unionized and they were, you know, pretty protective of their workers, which is fair enough. And so um it was cab driving or waiting, and um, you know I saw something where I could go in and get my hack license and take a test at the at the um, you know down at the DMV and got that. Once you got that, they were looking for drivers, and uh, you know we didn't have GPS, so but Manhattan's pretty simple. It was just um, it was harder to figure out, but basically you got drives around Manhattan or to uh, Kennedy or LaGuardia. And once you figured out a couple of routes out there, it was pretty simple to go. They're all well-signed and all that stuff. So, and I didn't do it to be, for, to be honest with you for very long because I got the job right after I started. I got a job uh, waiting tables and I did the, I worked both of them for a while, just enough to pay off the money we borrowed to get the apartment and get started and uh once i did that I, I was there to you know meet people and have fun well you know meeting people and driving a cab you, you got them in the cab for five ten fifteen minutes max and unless you're going to the airport and that's it you know they just pay you and you're gone 
But waiting tables, you, you know, you're talking to people, serving them, you know, face-to-face with them. So it was a little bit different deal. That was it. That's how it started. Now, what were these, the early 70s, mid-70s? This was, um, this was 1970 and, and part of 71. And I went to the driving school in 71 and then came back um, and worked for about six months. Um, in 72, um, 71, 72, uh, to raise a little money. And then we, we put together a deal, um, again, through Ken Terrell, who asked Vern Schupin, who you remember the name, um, what's the best formula for it? And Vern actually went and tested, uh, three or four cars. And he said, Hey, I think the best one's just Eldon. And so, you know, he did some homework with them. They said, hey, we've got a seat available. This is what it is. And, that, and that's how it all started. And uh, then in in the sort of February of, it might have even been March, but I think it was February of 72, I went back over, and that was my first full season. Um, and I went over there funny. I, we did this deal and, you know, got got the money from... Frank raised some money from, believe it or not, from uh, Augie Pabst and uh, Jim Kimberly of Kimberly Clark. And they were all past racing buddies of them. And when I say got some money from them, I'm talking, you know, a couple thousand bucks each type of thing. Yeah. And uh, but back in the day, that was a lot of money, you know. And so he did. A, he called Stuart Turner and got a deal for the Ford engines and. And uh, again, this was all Frank's network. These were all his his mates, and uh, so they held helped out. And I got over there and found a trailer and bought a little escort van, a little Ford escort van, and uh, and that's how it started. But it, the funny story I was going to tell you is the car was supposed to be ready for me to you know to drive when I got over there, and I went down to they were being built. These guys were just trying to get a factory ready because they were pretty new at it. And they were built, being built in Mike Catlow's garage at his house in, in sort of South London. And I went down there to see the car. And I got there, and the, I didn't see the car. And he said, that's the car right there. And there was a chassis sitting on stands, and there was a bunch of a pile of bits on the floor. And he says, there it is. And I said, I thought it was supposed to be ready. He said, it will be as soon as you finish building it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's how it started. And I'm, if you ask most anybody, I'm not the, the most mechanical or, you know, I don't have the greatest patient doing tap and dive and bolting everything together. But anyway, that's, all, that's how it all started. So it was a, it was a, but it was a great experience, and I lived in a. Then they got the shop going down a little, just down the street from Brands Hatch, and I found a boarding house for eight pounds a week, eight pounds sterling a week, uh, and I lived in that house with the likes of Tony Trimmer, Tom Price that drove for Shadow, uh, Jorge Cochran. A uh, whole group of people, and it was a bunch of racers because it was it was right across the street from Brands Hatch, from just down the street from the main entrance on the Seven Oaks Road, and um, I lived in there 
you know, eight pounds a week, all the beans on toast you can eat, you know. <laughs> oh, but it was a great environment because, you know, I didn't I didn't have much money, any money to be speaking of, except to go racing. So I spent the house, the time at the house for dinner and get up in the morning and go down and work on the car in the shop. And, and, and uh, when we go testing and go racing, um, we did the test every Wednesday. They had an open test at Brand Tax on the club circuit. I did it every Wednesday, like every one of us at Eldon. And, you know, the funny part is we, we I think my first race was in March. Um, that's why I know I got over there in February. My first race was in March. And between heats, and and they don't do a lot of heat semifinals. This isn't like a, a sprint car race or something like that where you got, you know, an A main, B main, you know, all that stuff. Every now and again, you'd have a, a heat on a, on a semi or a final. But I did 52 races in nine months there. And uh, and it was just, it was such a great experience. And, you know, these races are too, on, on some of them, a long race would be 10 laps. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're just little sprint races. So even though the, the, the saying is true, um, you, you can't, uh, win a race on the first lap is true, but you can lose it on the first lap in an eight or 10 lap race. If you get, you, you get messed up or tangled or go off or drop a bunch of places. So, you know, we really learned how to, start and go quick <laughs> you know so i mean listen my my time overseas and particularly in england in the early days the formative years were just was just fat, fabulous you know rain you know bad weather uh competitive driving and it was just and it was a it was a melting pot of people uh because there'd be people you're racing against that was a star from brazil um you know australia new zealand canada um they were from all over so it was it was great racing and and a fabulous experience the year i did formula three competitive for modus um you know gunner nielsen won the championship i tied i think with uh ribeiro for second in the championship um and of the top 10 people in the championship, nine of them drove a Formula One car. Now, the most famous, of course, nobody went on to be, you know, world champion or anything of, of note in, in Formula One. But Gunnar Nielsen did. He was Mario Andretti's teammate. Um, and won before he got cancer. He had already won. I think he won the Belgium Grand Prix. And in fact, I know it was a Belgium Grand Prix. Yeah. In his first year, and um, um, you know, and Gunnar was my best friend. I mean, hell, he and I drove to the races together, and then we'd we'd take his car, my car, and then we'd drop them off at the team hotel, which was never the same. He drove for March, I was driving for Modus, um, and uh, so. You know, but you know, you Stefan Johansson in the in the Bruno Giacomelli, all these guys were in that when I did my test for Formula One, they were all part of the test. You know, that I was competing against them. So, you know, it was listen, there's guys over there, let me tell you, I'll, I'll give you an example of a name. 
And this guy was uh, this guy was old when I was racing, and I think he's still driving. But Sid Fox was like a a legend at Brands Hatch. He only ever raced at Brands Hatch. Okay, and there were specialists like that almost. There, you go to Olden Park in a Formula Ford racing for the championship. There'd be a couple of local guys that only raced at Alton Park. And these guys were hard to beat because they had it all set up for, you know, they knew the track like the back of their hand and they had the car set up just for that track. And they were tough guys to beat. So, you know, there weren't always the the big names, but you you came up through the, with the names in the categories as you moved up in Formula 3, Formula 2. You know, there was a lot of guys in there that Teo Fabi that you would know was in, was in Formula 2. You know, you know Patrick Tombay, Hans Stuck, you know, guys like that. Um, you wouldn't probably remember DDA Peroni, uh, people like this that, that drove Formula 1. Um, but, you know, you don't have to worry about competition over there, trust me. In the world of racing, Penske means performance and winning. For good reason. Since 1966, Team Penske has won 44 national championships, 17 in IndyCar alone. And last year, Team Penske claimed its Indianapolis 500 record-extending 19th Indy 500 win with Joseph Newgarden, the latest driver, to win the famed race. Team Penske also won its second straight NASCAR Cup Series championship. In 2022, Penske was the first team in history to win both the IndyCar and the NASCAR Cup Series championships in the same season. Team Penske enters the 2024 NTT IndyCar Series season with 236 IndyCar wins, including 34 500-mile race victories. Those are results that are tough to top. But Penske's legendary reputation for quality and attention to detail makes a statement off the track, too. When you need a truck, whether for your business or for a household move, Penske Truck Rental has some of the cleanest, newest, and best-maintained vehicles on the road. And we make it easy with personalized support from our associates, flexible reservations, and access to the top technology. With quick pickup and drop-off at more than 2,500 locations across North America, our scale and know-how will keep you covered, all helping to ensure you get the right, reliable, fuel-efficient vehicle when and where you need it. On the highways, the raceways, and every pit stop in between, Penske keeps you moving forward. Gain ground with Penske. Get a quote today at PenskeTruckRental.com or... For household rentals, download the Penske Truck Rental mobile app today. How important was the Garvin Brown um, ride in SCCA Can Am in 1981? Well, he saved my career. He saved Garvin, um, a Kentucky guy, uh, was a heir to Brown Former and Distillers, great guy. And we had met a couple times. I, I knew the family when I grew up, but I didn't know Garvin because he was a little bit older than I was, about five years. So we were just in a you know a little bit different um, you know era. But I knew cousins and this, that, and the other. But I only got to know Garvin when I'd moved back from Europe to Kentucky. Um, 
and was struggling to, you know, find a drive. And and he he used to come into town, and because he liked cars and so forth, we used to go to dinner. And he, you know, we befriended him from one time, and I was about to quit. I mean, I'd found a, a, a job opportunity to go work on one of those crab boats up off Alaska because I was fed up with chasing money and being broke all the time and working a couple of jobs. And and Darwin says, well, you don't have anything going? And I said, well, I've been asked to do a can deal out in, in, at Riverside. And he said, well, why don't you come out to, you know, let's take a look at it. Come on out. Let's go visit them. And I said, Garvin, I can't even afford the airplane ticket. Oh, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll pay for it. And uh, I remember going to my dad and I said, hey, look, I'm going to put this on my credit card. If he doesn't pay pay it, would you would you cover it? And he said, okay. And um, and I went out there. And we didn't do the deal with the with the Can-Am, and it was too last minute anyway. And I'd have probably been out to lunch because I just didn't, you know, without any testing, to jump in a Can-Am car was a big jump, you know, for me. Because this was pre-my Formula One stuff or anything, so I hadn't driven anything kind of that powerful. And uh, so we didn't do it. And I remember we were at a hotel out there, and... Uh, we were in the bar and uh, just before, kind of before dinner time at the hotel and a lot of people were standing there and Mario was in there and Big Al and I I knew them a little bit. I knew Mario pretty well because he had been Gunnar Nielsen's uh, teammate and so I used to go pick up Mario at the airport and got to know him and he tried to help me some stuff time through my career and so forth uh, early on. Anyway, and uh, I, I left to go to you know the bathroom, and uh, I guess Mario said, "Hey, if you if you could help this guy, he's got a lot of talent. But we, he could use the help." And literally before I left there, I I made a deal with him. He put me on a retainer. Now, let me let me this the retainer was <laughs> was relative, and it, I mean I felt really. I felt really wealthy, but it wasn't, you know, he, he, he wasn't getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, it was, it was perfect. And and then that's when we started looking around and trying to do some deals. We went to Europe and tried to put together a Formula 2 deal, and it fell through at the last minute. And then this Can-Am deal came, and it was a disaster. There, um, there was a book written about it, Fast Lane Summer by Leon Mandel. And uh, it was a bit of a disaster, but it morphed into something uh, that really worked worked out. Well, that was all because of Garvin's money, you know. I mean, okay, I'm I'm just making suggestions and stuff like that, but if he hadn't wanted to spend the money, I wasn't going anywhere, you know. So he was a very very uh, important part of of my career. Because without him, it wouldn't have launched to where what, what became a big success. And uh, he was a very classy guy. We we had a deal that you know he 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 owned a piece of of me for I forget how many years, and um, and and I had pretty I moved up pretty fast. And I think he had it for five years. That was a deal we had made, and. Uh, I had a bunch of success and there's one indie in those five years. And I said, well, all right, man, who do you want me to make the check to? And he said, don't worry about it. Just consider it. Just consider it. And, 
know, he loved it. I mean, he just loved being a part of it and, and uh, was with us for an awful long time, you know, until he passed. But you you got the victory in for Garvin Brown at the Caesars Palace Grand Prix in 1981. And then from there, how did you end up with Jerry Forsythe and Kurt? Well, um, Jerry was was looking to go into cart and uh, do some stuff, and and I guess a couple people said something, and he had seen me do this, and also because of Garvin, he said, "Well, hey, would you throw a little money into it if we if we if we do this deal?" And Garvin said, "Yes," unbeknownst to me, and um, and it was a. Um, um, it was good, but when Hector Rabake came and was offering big money, because Jerry got established and had some good people working for him, and and uh, you know we had you know done that first race down there at Atlanta and finished third in my first ever race, um, you know that that uh, that kind of opened the door that these guys were pretty good and we were okay at Indy until it got wrapped up in somebody else's deal. But when Hector came in and, and he was offering big money, um, I got, I just, and Garvin, I, I don't blame him. Garvin, they asked Garvin for a lot of money. Garvin didn't want to put that kind of money in. You know, he just didn't want to put that, he didn't want to do it. And if he did it, he, he wanted to do it as Garvin Brown Racing. He didn't want to do it with Jerry. Yeah. You know, and on that. So it's the funny part on the deal was, I had the deal. To this day, Jerry Forsythe still hasn't paid me my prize money. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna get. I'm gonna send him something with the uh, with the accumulation of interest on all that stuff, just to, just for fun. But and it wasn't that much. It was just. But you know, uh, when you're young, when you're a young starving driver, every penny counts. You know. So, um, but but that's how it got going, and then. And then the, but I'll tell you where Garvin did step up when I got the, the, you know, call from Ken Tyrrell after that. So we continued to do the Can-Am series and then I got the call from Ken Tyrrell and he said, invited me to come over for a test. And I remember I knew Ken from Frank and I, I was a gopher for Tyrrell. I lived with Ken and Nora for four months when I first went to England. I mean, in the house. And, um, and they, uh, you know, I knew them really well. I was a gopher for them when I first went over there and did the Jim Russell School. So, I, you know, I, I used to go pick up Jackie Stewart at the airport or Helen or whatever. And, and I'd move tires around and polish cars and stuff like that. And I didn't go to every race. But um, anyway, uh, but I knew them very well. I got the call from Ken and it was going to be this test of Paul Ricard. So we went there in November. Um, of 82 and to do the test. And there was 10 drivers. Uh, I can't remember all of them, but Bruno Giacomelli, Bebby Gabbiani, uh, Stefan Johansson, you know, all the hot, kind of hot guys at the time. And, and Ken was going to do a, a 10 lap each uh, test one day. And, and I got, I, I was dressed and we'd gotten over there a day or two early to get used to the, you know, time change. And, you know, so we weren't jet lagged and, and, uh, I go in and, and, uh, and right before, not right before, but, you know, a little bit before 
Ken walks in and hands a contract, says, you need to sign this before you do the test. And I said, okay. And I read the, and I, you remember, I knew Ken very well, first name basis, and been, a, been around him a long time, you know, a lot of time. And he was tough, but very, you know, but fair. And he gave me his contract. And I read through the contract, and Darwin walks into the motorhome. I mean, as a transporter, I'm getting changed out of my suit. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I said, Garvin, I can't sign this contract. And he said, why? And I said, because I can't can't even afford to get to the, it doesn't even cover me to get to the races. I said, and it's, I said, I can't afford to sign it. I said, I can't do it. And he said, well, don't worry. He said, if you get the, if you get the drive, he said, I'll pay your, I'll pay your retainer. And so I got dressed and did it. And, um, and I got, I, I beat everybody in that test. And then I had to do one more in Brazil um, with McKaylee and, and did that. But, it, but again, Garvin stepped up, you know, to do that. And, uh, um, you know, and he really wanted to do Formula One and, you know, I, I think he liked the idea. He'd spent a number of years, you know, off and on. He'd gone back and forth to Europe. So he really liked the idea of, of Formula One. And uh, so there you go. And and the fact that he didn't have to have a team, you know. Uh, so so that's how it all started. So Garvin was a, was a big part of, a big part of saving my career uh, through all of that. And, uh, you know, so... Kudos to him. Sorry, he's gone. So you finally reached a uh, a pinnacle of driving in Formula One in 1983. And at that time, was Eddie Cheever also in uh, Formula One at that time? So there were two American drivers in the series? He was driving, I think Eddie was driving at that time for Renault um, with uh, Rene Arnoux. You'd have to check that. I I want to be careful to say unequivocally. Um, But he was driving, and I'm not so sure he didn't drive the next year, but I think he was in that year um, because Arno was driving for him. You know what? Um, No, he was not in. Arno was, was driving with Alan Prost in the Renault. And then PK was in the BMW um, and, and he was in that um, PK was in the BMW. Who else was in the BMW? Uh, Alan Jones was in the, uh, Alan Jones was in the Williams. Um, no, I take that back. Arnu, I could be wrong about, about Chivo because Arnu was actually driving for, for Ferrari at that time. He was with Ferrari. Yeah. At that time, Mansell was in there in the JPS Lotus. Um, you know, that kind of, that was kind of the, that was the field. So, but to be an American in Formula One at that time was, well, it's as rare as it would be today. Um, you know, since Mario had won a world championship in, in, uh, in 78, yeah. but there he was back in cart by then. Yeah. It was not a, uh, it was not a common thing. And at the time, Eddie is American, and and never you'll never that's never contested. And I'm not saying, but he was considered a lot more European at that time um, because he had never really lived here. 
except when he was like one year old. And he grew up in he grew up in Rome. And so driving even though he he is American, was American, you know, American passport, all that sort of stuff, but he was um by a lot of people over there he was considered a lot more um uh European than than American at, at that juncture. And uh he drove for BMW and Formula Two. Um and uh I had driven with Eddie um a little bit of time at Modus, even though he was a private, you know, it was a little bit more of a private thing. Um he came over and that's how we got to know each other was in Formula Three at, at, at Modus. So um but you know, I you'd have to check the I I forget everybody that was in at that time, Elio DeAngelis, Mansell, they were Lotus and I, I can't remember everybody in every in every car. So I should be able to, but um yeah, being only in it for a year, um, you know, and then the sponsorship went away. I I just didn't remember that much. And the funny thing back then too you were always paired garage everything with the team next to you. They were always the same team on one side and the same team on the other side. That was it the whole season. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, and just like a little bit the paddock now, it wasn't, it wasn't quite a social. You didn't kind of walk around. So you kind of did your thing, did the car debrief, all that sort of stuff. And, and they didn't have all the big motorhome hospitality things. They they had them, but they were much more of a of a Winnebago type thing. If not, and than they are now, you know, with all that stuff, it, it really morphed after that. And remember, at that time, Bernie owned Bernie Egglestone owned Brabham, so he was a, a team guy too. So um, anyway, it was a it was a fascinating time. And I wish it had stayed. I wish it had morphed. But looking back on it right now, but thankful to Doug Shearson, the success I had with him, and obviously with Team Penske and you know Gals, everybody, you know, I, I'm glad I did made the move that I did. But um, but at the time, because my background was so much more European Formula racing, Formula One was the was the goal. You know, that's what I was after. Well, the one season you ran in Formula One, your best finish was fifth at Monte Carlo, which obviously if you're going to pick a track to or a venue to have your best finish, that would be it, the most famous race on the schedule. What do you recall about that day and how important was that? Well, it was really important, but I'd had um, at the Brands Hatch Race of Champions, non-championship race prior to that, again, not world championship, but it had you know, almost everybody there, um, or they, you know, top sort of 12 cars or something like that. McKaylee didn't do it. So I got a last minute call to do the race at Brands Hatch on the Grand Prix circuit. And, uh, I actually raced Keke Rosberg in the Williams, um, for the last lap for the win of the deal. I tried to pass him around the outside of Druid's, that's a hairpin second corner, if you like, um, up around the outside. And he kind of opened the door on me and we battled the whole way for, uh, for that. And, uh, so that I've, I've gained a lot of confidence. I've run well at Long Beach and telemechanical. 
And then I qualified, which at those times in Monaco, they only started 20 cars, but they were 22 cars in the, in the, in the, um, uh, championship. Okay. So you know who the two cars that didn't qualify were that year? Who? Nikki Lauda, Nikki Lauda and the McLaren and John Watson and the McLaren. Yeah. And the reason why is remember how, and they're talking about changing it next year because I think Vettel's upset about it. The thing that they're talking about for next year is so they have practice Thursday uh, and then Friday's off, then uh, Saturday, Sunday, okay? In um, those days, uh, they had you qualified, you know, all the times counted for the deal. And um, the McLaren struggled on on Thursday, and so I was last. I was 20th in the deal, and it rained on Saturday. And all your times counted. They didn't have a designated qualifying. So your times all counted, you know, accumulated. And um, so I qualified. I was dead last. And I'll never forget this because it's raining. And I'm not saying that it's, you know, might rain or anything like that. It's raining. And the start line there, if you're closest to what the old pits were, the barrier on the inside where the where the guys hang out the boards, the it's under trees. It's a tree line center of this road. And um, I'm on the outside, and Tyrrell comes up to me, and he says, uh, which tires do you want? And he, before I could answer, because I looked at him like, really, there's a question here? The track's wet and it's raining. And he goes, I thought you'd want slicks. Good call. And I said, what? And he goes, yeah, it's going to stop raining soon. Uh, so I didn't have much of a choice. And DeAngelis was next to me. But, you know, it's staggered. And he looks over at me and he's pointing at his head like, are you crazy? Slicks. And... Remember then, in 83, they didn't make pit stops, okay? They made pit stops if they had to, but they didn't make scheduled pit stops. You started on the tires, and you finished on the tires. You didn't refuel. You didn't do anything, okay? And um, I started off, and, you know, you're slipping and sliding, and I got down, I think, to, you know, Casino or... Um, you know, one of the hairpin, I think it was casino and somebody's gone off and, and I'm thinking to myself, you are so slow. You are such a wanker. I can't believe how slow you're going. And there was a couple of cars went off on the first lap and I thought, no, maybe I'm not going that slow, <laughs> you know? And anyway, I started picking my way through. And of course the guys that started all wet, it stopped raining. They're, you know, the race is like, I don't know, 88 laps or something like that. And after about 25 laps, there's no rain and it's drying out. So the guys that were on wets had to make pit stops. And so I was, next thing I knew, I was, you know, toward the end of the race, I'm lying fit. I've made a couple passes and stuff like that. And, you know, starting dead last. And remember, then the world championship points only went to sixth place. Okay. So um, it was a big deal to score two points because the same thing, you know, those guys are paid a lot on, on points for, for that's where the money comes out of the fund is paid for by where those guys get their points, you know? So anyway, it was a, it was a, um, 
it was an interesting deal and, and a big, uh, big, big thing. And, and, uh, uh, Prince Albert came up to me at the start and you're American and I'm, I'm half American and da, 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 da. And, um, you know, we met afterwards and, you know, interesting time. The friendship still goes on. So, you know, so it was a interesting place to, you know, I I looked at it too. I had some other what I thought were really good races. Um, you know, during the year we had a problem. I had to start from the uh, from the pits at at uh, Kailami, and we remember we were normally aspirated, so I didn't have, and it was altitude, and so the turbos really killed us. But but I came all the way through and finished seventh. Okay, it was out of the it was out of the um, it was out of the points, but it was still a great, for me, it was a, it was a great drive, if that makes sense. And when I say great drive, I don't want to ever, you know, pat myself on the back and say great drive. I shouldn't you use that word, but it was a good drive. It was a good result, you know, and, and, you know, that's what you're looking for. Um, so anyway, it, you know, it, the American races were a little frustrating because we had fail, you know, mechanicals on them and, and uh, anyway, but it was a fun season, but then sadly it ended when the Benetton money went away. And that puts a checkered flag on this edition of Pit Pass Indy. We want to thank 1985 Indianapolis 500 winning driver and 1988 kart champion Danny Sullivan for joining us on today's podcast. Be sure to tune in next week for part two with Sullivan, where we focus on his IndyCar career, including his famed spin and win in the 1985 Indy 500. Along with loyal listeners like you, our guests help make Pit Pass Indy your path to victory lane for all things IndyCar. The season may be over and the championship decided, but Pit Pass Indy will continue to race forward in the offseason with more in-depth interviews featuring the biggest names in the NTT IndyCar series. So please be sure to continue to tune in to Pit Pass Indy. For more IndyCar coverage, follow me at Twitter at Bruce Martin, one word, uppercase B, uppercase M, underscore 500. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thanks to our production team. Executive producers are Bridget Coyne and Gerardo Orlando. Recordings and edits were done by me, Bruce Martin, and final mixing was done by Dave Douglas. Learn more at evergreenpodcast.com. Until next time, be sure to keep it out of the wall.